Hey, I'm Stuart McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Carbon. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with the world's top accounting leaders. I'd love to kick off and ask how you got into, you know, VC. Was that after college and everything, was that always your path or... You know, did you fall into it or did it find you? How did all that sort of, what was the early career of Dave Wan? Gosh, no, not at all. I went to college thinking I wanted to be a marine biologist. Oh, wow. I was a big John Steinbeck fan and Ed Ricketts was kind of my hero. And so I went to college uh, wanting to be a marine biologist and came across a guy named Terry Burnham, who was a PhD student in economics actually had been in the army, had started a biotech company and worked at, as an investment banker. This guy was like my hero and was a good athlete. He, uh, he used to come to my rugby games. It was like, just really took me under his wing. And so that kind of got me on the business path. And, you know, I would say like compared to people today, I was incredibly naive about what business was and what the different possibilities were. I was really fortunate to go, my first job out of college, go to a uh, management consulting firm called Bain in San Francisco. And actually, you know, this is not only an incredible professional experience, but also an amazing personal experience. I think half of our wedding party, uh, my wife also was a half of our wedding party were Bainies. But at any rate, so got into business and then actually got into management consulting, you know, did my two years there and was actually going to go back to Boston to go to Bain Capital, uh, but decided to get involved in the Taxi and just got roped into startups. Anyway, so the path to venture capital, to answer your question directly, was completely um, circuitous and random. I was fortunate to start by joined, we sold to a company called CMGI, which no longer exists. Uh, it was a big company back then. At any rate, so after we sold pretty soon, I realized I didn't want to be part of a big company. And I called up a good friend of mine, Amit Shah, and he told me about this thing called venture capital. And I was like, <laughs> what's that? And he told me about it, sounded interesting. <laughs> Uh, this was 99 and, you know, the VC market was going through its first growth phase and VCs just wanted a warm body and I was a warm body. And so I was, I was really fortunate to get a job and start investing in 2000, right? in time to catch a bunch of falling knives. So it was all quite random story, um, <laughs> but uh, it's worked out and it's been really fun. What were some of those early companies that you sort of got involved with? And looking back, how has the industry change and evolve? What's the same? What's massively different? Oh, it, it's all different. <laughs> uh, so I started investing in 2000. That's right when the first dot-com hit. And for people who weren't around then, and a lot of people weren't, it was really cute in San Francisco, right? It felt like the world imploded right in San Francisco. So it felt like we were, <laughs> it was all on us and it was really quite depressing. So Look, I would say that my first tour of duty in venture capital was for about three years. I would say half of it was actually working out companies that had failed. I was fortunate to invest in a number of companies, a business called Profit Logic that Oracle bought. I actually didn't invest in, in VMware, but our firm did, and I got to know Diane Green, and I worked with her a bit there, and a couple other companies that actually went on to some reasonable success. But I think probably the most important part of that experience is, is seeing what can go wrong and what happens when the music stops, right? Like. A lot of the stuff that was happening in 99 probably isn't that different than some parts of 2021. So it was a great experience. I was pretty convinced that during portions of time, you couldn't make money investing in tech. <laughs> and so it was good to see some fear and just a degree. But yeah, it was totally different. Back then, like a five to $7 million investment was a big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. And so when I ended up going to TCB and 
investment checks that we do. Like I was quite scared for the first year. <laughs> I was like, man, this is a lot of money to put in one company. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's totally different. It's totally different. I feel, I feel old, Stuart. You're making me feel like talking like the old days. Uh, right? No, 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 no. That's wise and experienced, Dave, not old. And well, let's talk a bit about, you know, you, you said sort of 99 is feeling a little bit like 21. What are the, well, let's call it pattern matching because that's what the industry does, right? What are you seeing that, that perhaps is a bit concerning for you? Maybe let, let me pull it apart in two ways. It's easy to dump on 2021 given what happened in the public markets. I, I would say... It's very different than 99 in the sense that the companies that are in technology are a couple orders of magnitude bigger. Yeah. Their, uh, their opportunities are much bigger yep. because this market compounds. And their business models potentially are, are quite a bit stronger, right? If you think about like the old school license and software model in, 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 you know, of 20 years ago versus the consumption model, the bombs up PLG consumption models today, there's no comparison, right? The TAMs are, again, two orders of magnitude is bigger. The businesses can be that much more profitable, that much higher growth. I would say the things that are similar between 1999 and 2021 is a little bit of lack of perspective, right? We're on a, a big sign curve. You know, it, certainly we're on a, on a cycle now that the shape of the curve may not be as neat as a sine curve, but we are an ebb and flow cycle and technology is an aspirational field. So at times the capital markets get ahead of themselves and at times they pull back. And like, it's sort of, that's just part of the cycle of things. I think overall the trajectory is upward and this is the best industry to invest in, the best industry to build a company in. Uh, but I think what is similar is candidly 99 people lost perspective on some of the longer term trends. I think in parts of 2021, People lost perspective on the longer-term trends of, of a couple of things. One, what makes a valuable company? Big TAM, component <clears throat> products, efficient distribution, and long-term economic growth, right? Long-term economic growth. And people started growing at, at all costs. And people thought that valuation levels were the measure of a company, not product success, not commercial success, not industry success. And so I think those things are very similar to 99. But, you know, a little recession and, and things correct pretty quickly. So I think it's fine. It's just, you know, having seen it a couple of times, or I guess three times now, there is a pattern to it, Stuart. Experience counts. And what was your journey to B2B SaaS in particular? What were some of those initial companies that took you down that path, which is, you know, probably the Tidemark specialty now, at least? <laughs> yeah. I've been really lucky, Stuart. Like I've had a number of great founders take chances on me. And and I think probably the first deal that where a founder said, Hey Dave, I want you to be on my board and I want you to lead, which is a big deal as a young person going through the ranks. And there's a lot of both internal and external uh, issues and barriers for you to get to that place. It was a guy named Scott Dorsey, founder and CEO of Exact Target, and you know, he took a chance on me and that's been incredible. He's still a friend today. He's an investor in Tidemark. Another guy, Arshad Mateen, actually, he was a CEO of a company called SMT where I was, that was my first real board. And so he put up with my my junior enthusiasm and some of the nonsense that comes with, you know, going, being on a board for the first time. So he's now running a company called Aveda where I'm on the board again. And I'm really grateful to him. Likewise. David Williams, founder and CEO of Merkel. He was running that business for 25 years before he brought us on as the first outside board member. And I remember I was a principal at the time. I was competing with the heads of 
technology of some very large uh, competitors. And, you know, despite a lower title and, you know, it's probably five, six, seven years younger than my competitors, he took a chance on me. And so I think like that happens every day, right? Like even you most recently, you took a chance on us, right? So like, I think it's kind of one of these things where you got to earn it every day and you're just really grateful to CEOs that they're willing to take you on as a partner and, you know, trust that you'll help accelerate their business and support their business and support their vision. Obviously, venture capital can apply to anywhere in the t- in, in technology in particular. And a lot of, you know, I've got to know you pretty well. Uh, I can kind of see why, you know, B2B is very Dave one. But tell me, Dave, in your own words, you know, like, why not consumer? Why not sort of, you know, sexy advertising? Why not, you know, the hymns and the hers of the world? Why B2B, SaaS? And why boring old accounting? <laughs> How did we get here? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about those. Those are two separate things. So first of all, I have done about a, a third B2C. So we were fortunate to be big, big investors in Facebook and LinkedIn and ByteDance and Rover and Click and some great business Rover, some great businesses on that side. Maybe just a couple of distinctions versus is we have invested about, I don't know, a third of our capital and I have invested historically a third of my capital in BC. So Facebook, LinkedIn, ByteDance, Rover, Kluke, LegalZoom, LegalZoom's kind of SMB, B2C as well. Um, so I have done that. But I do find myself gravitating to B2B because of the rationality of the business models, right? Like when you sell a product to a business consumer, it's pretty straightforward in terms of what a value proposition is. It's help a company grow. It's help someone do something more efficiently. It's help a company have insight into their business. And so there's a lot more logic. And if you look at the B2C companies I've invested in, a lot of the times it's been a platform company where there's an inherent network effect and logic to the business versus more of a, a sort of consumer fancy piece, which is for me harder to grok. And I'm just not as good as it and probably can be a little less interested in it. On the B2B side, and it's awesome. Like I love business. That's that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm an investor. Is I love pulling apart businesses, and I love how technology applied to business can really accelerate and, and expand both the TAM, the growth, and the the franchise of that business. And so I think it's it's just logical that for me to invest in software companies that do that, right? Like if you think about what Carbon can do for its accounting customers and the account clients, it's magic, right? Like you can. There's always, for a small business I found, and we've been fortunate to invest in a lot of small businesses, there's always the scene of the owner of the small business doing their work from the beach, right? That's yeah. winning, right? <laughs> it's the flexibility. It's being able to do your work on your terms. And like, I love the fact that, Carbon, you have this triage product where you can be the primary force of the company. You can be the founder and sell the business, but then engage with the clients and have your team engage with the clients as well. And it gives gives you kind of leverage in a way that's like magical. The whole task management piece, right? You know, creating order to a really, you know, you know, maybe otherwise chaotic environment. That, that's super cool. And so that type of empowerment is why I invest in B2B. And then like, obviously, these are some of the best business models on the planet. Like, we can <laughs> talk about that all day. Now, I think you also asked about accountants. Yep. And yep. it's kind of weird. Like, I've now invested in zero and now, now carbon. And I guess... There's probably two answers of why I invest in software companies selling the accounts. The first is this may be not an obvious statement, but like I actually really I have a deep belief and respect for accounting, right? I view like financials aren't everything, right? But the financials are the scoreboard, in my opinion. Like 
there's a short-term scoreboard, and you have to look beyond the financial results, but there are a scoreboard. And I view counts as being the referees or making sure there's integrity to, to the <laughs> score. And in how you represent your financials tells you a lot about the business. And again, it comes back to this educational experience where in business school, I, I happen to take a forensic accounting class from uh, this woman who's lights out. This professor would have been probably the most successful short hedge fund investor out there. She could look at a set of accounting statements and see fraud. She said no way. And so like, <laughs> I've always had a, a high degree of respect for accounts. Now, as I've gotten a little bit smarter and have been more experienced about SMB and we've you know invested now in over 10 vertical SaaS and SMB companies, I realized the role that accounts play for their clients. And in small business accounts are the coaches, right? Because they are the score. And oftentimes a lot of small businesses are heads down their business, running their restaurants, running the retail store. They have a intuitive flow of what's going on in their business, but they actually don't have a true thoughtful scoreboard. Accounts can be actually a great advisor to say, this is actually how your business is actually performing. Have you thought about these two or three things that will accelerate or make your business more profitable? And as I've had the fortune of work with guys like Dan Wardenkoff and Chris at Toast and Sankar at LegalZoom, uh, sorry, not Leo's a sitemunder, I've realized that this isn't just like a anecdote. This is, you know, a pattern where the best small businesses do work with accounts. And so I love the idea of providing software, particularly to accounts that serve small businesses, because that's one way of really supporting the small business community. If you like step up, step up take a step way back and, and you think about like why does America work and yeah. I'll like rambling <laughs> a little bit here, but like why does America work? It's social mobility. The two parts the social mobility are education and entrepreneurship. And education is like super expensive. It's becoming it's become harder and harder for the average family or the immigrant family access. And so like small business is the lifeblood. And so I love this idea of investing in software companies that serve accounts that serve small business. There is something elegant around the relationship, right, of accountants and their clients. You know, the the one thing that, you know, comes across on this podcast when, when I interview accountants and just talking to, well, probably thousands of them now, maybe tens of thousands, you know, the common theme and the reason people go into accounting is because they're attracted to this idea of helping clients and clients become friends over their life journey to just do better you know just just be yeah just play that little role around helping that person achieve whatever it is that they're setting out to achieve it doesn't have to be world beating but it just has to be satisfying to that client and well i personally draw a lot of satisfaction in our little role in that in that relationship too <laughs> i invest the way i do right i could i could have been a public market investor i could have been a you know, kind of low growth buyout investor. And I chose to to do this for investing, which is my aspiration is there's a point like the, the management team runs their businesses and they drive the, the heart of the business and, you know, 99% of the value. But my hope is there's one point in time where it's a nudge, it's an idea, it's a resource, it's a person that we can, you know, change the arc of it. Mm. And so, yeah, I totally resonate with that. I think with accounts, accounts too, like they have to go through so much in terms of mm. data collection and like the a lot of the manual stuff that gets in the way of doing my sense of having spoken to accounts as well, like the real joy in their work. And so again, this idea of software taking away some of the drudgery um, and actually some of the cost structure so that they can provide advice and um, do it in a 
cost efficient way for their clients. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, get just allowing them to do what it is that they enjoy and trying to remove as much of everything else as possible. So speaking of accountants, your first investment in the industry was zero. Why don't you tell tell us a little bit about how that came about, Dave? So it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> do you want the two-minute answer or you want the 10-minute answer? Um, no, the 10-minute answer, definitely. I mean, Rod's an interesting guy to work with, right? 10-minute answer. All right. Rod is an interesting guy. So zero was one of these businesses that went public very early. They went public just right after they got revenue. And at TCV, we invested publicly at times, but, but mainly privately. And so in general, I thought of zero as we're not necessarily going to invest, but gosh, they're doing something really interesting. This was back in the day, this is probably about 15 years ago, maybe 12 to 15 years ago, where the concept of software having great design and being user-driven, right? The user, the, the buyer is the user, and then the, the user buys on the credit card was a new concept. And Zero, this company out of New Zealand, was them and this other company called SolarWinds, and you know a couple other companies have, have SurveyMonkey is a good example of this. This is still a rare occurrence. And so like, I was like, I got I to gotta learn about these guys. And so I got on a plane to, to New Zealand mm. and got to know Rod and Chris Teeling and, <laughs> and spent some time with them. And it was, they were kind enough to host me in Wellington. They didn't necessarily need any money. I wasn't playing on invest. It was just ideas, like just the, the joy of like learning about their company, the joy of them sharing their company. It was like awesome. And so what I came to really respect is for some reason, there's something in the water. And I know New Zealand is different from Australia, so I'm not complaining <laughs> the two, but there's something about that region. And partly it's, it's too, well, let me get to what why I think this is happening in a second. But like, there's something about this region where there's a lot of great design-driven product-led software companies that are expanding global, right? Carbon's a great example of that. I don't think it's the water. I think it's the fact that um, two things. There wasn't a lot of venture capital at the time. So the the Darwin is in effect, the, the companies that were successful were product-led and design-oriented and users, the buyer, so on and so forth. And the second is that these are relatively smaller markets, and so you need to go global day one. And so I came to really respect this class of company. And um, and so I started going to Russia, invested in SiteMinder, looked at a bunch of companies I candidly I should have invested in. And so what occurred is I happened to be in New Zealand again, actually on a surf trip, and uh, I was in sorry, my you know, favorite spot in the world, Ragland, New Zealand. And so I, I asked Rod to get together. Turns out the day before I was meeting Rod, I took my surf fan, my scanning straight to my eyebrow, split my eye open, like literally gashed it open. So blood was pouring down my face. So I was paddling back into shore. Like people were just horrified. Um, and <laughs> the, the, they, a, they would have been uh, thinking a shark. Nice doctor just stitched me up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, chumming the water. So I waited for 15 minutes. In the U.S., it would have taken me like six hours. Did 15 minutes, great doctor, puts nine stitches in me, charges me, I think it was 17 Kiwi dollars. Like <laughs> About two, $2 US, US dollars. Yeah. It was amazing. Like, I love the socialized medical experience. <laughs> but anyway, so I hadn't seen Rod in for two, two or three years. I show up to his office, and like there's nine stitches across my brow. And, you know, as you can tell, I'm kind of an expressive guy. And, you know, I'm talking my ideas again. And, like, this little drips of blood were coming out of stitches, flowing down my nose, down onto my white notebook. <laughs> Eric, Rod was cool with it. Yeah. Rod's a big surfer or a pedal board for himself. Like, he's cool with it. But, like, that was the foundation of me. But anyway, I got reconnected with Rod, and thereafter, actually, one of their big insiders was, was looking for liquidity. And so they reached out to, 
that was fortunate they reached out to me. We actually went over the wall and got into it and we, we did a pipe. And so we were very fortunate to invest in, and that's how I got to know Sankar, who now runs Site Miner. Sankar was the CFO and CEO at the time. And um, it's just been a really CFO, yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yes. It's just been a really nice relationship. You know, they would always drop by when they're in the Bay Area about once a quarter, and I would drop by there, and they got involved in a number of events. And so, yeah, Zero's been a, it's a hallmark of a company. It's a great platform. It shows the opportunity for carbon, and Rod's a great entrepreneur. It's uh, been a joy to get to know him. There's a couple of things in there that certainly resonate with our journey, and particularly the lack of money. I mean, you know, Rod, when he was 2006, they listed that business, and you know, we you say, oh, there's not much venture capital. I mean, there was literally not a single dollar in New Zealand available to Rod to launch that business. And he, he you know, it was done out of necessity. He had to yeah. to list. And, and he tells the joke around about, you know, that he, he got to 100 customers and that was what was in his, in his prospectus. And 98 of them were his family, right? And his brother signed up twice. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was hard going. But but I don't know if you ever spent any time with Philip Furlinger, who is a, uh, <laughs> using Australian sleeves, a septic tank. He's a yank, and um, but a well-known designer in New Zealand. He, he's lived in New Zealand for 25 years or, or longer, I think. And, you know, he tells some interesting stories around, you know, the, what Zero was before it was called Zero is called Accounting 2.0 or something, which luckily uh, they found their way through that. And, you know, a lot of the design-led, you know, I guess it was product-led growth before that was even a concept, but it was certainly design-led, you know, product development. And it was really a very strong aspect of the culture about how product was built and that it, that it you know, started in the designer's pencil or perhaps uh you know pixel and yeah you know philip will happily take a lot of the credit i think for that initial stance i guess is probably the best way of putting it and the understanding of how i guess the consumer was more or less a consumer in the traditional sense you know not not a business because it was so small it was you know you buy your accounting with your you know with your cornflakes or your <laughs> right like it was really um you know that, and then Survey Monkey and these other Mailchimp recently sold to to Intuit. Intuit doesn't get out of bed anymore for deals less than five billion or something, right? So, <laughs> you know, the um, a, a lot of these small business platforms grew up around the same time, and and I think it'd be fair to say that that Zero sort of had a fair bit of influence in that a prosumer, really. You know, that prosumer um, market. <laughs> I feel blessed. I mean, I think we're all fortunate for the times that we live in and the, the influences and nudges that we get. And, and Zero is definitely one of it. I feel blessed to be part of that time. And then now today, if you think about what these small business platforms can be, right? You know, we spend a lot of time writing about built out this vertical SaaS knowledge project. And I think what the world's starting to recognize is that you can start with one application that is through discussions, design-led, user purchased and the benefit for having the user be the buyer is that you can continue to add value. You can really add value. If if you occupy the right, you know, we use the language control points. If you can occupy the right spot, then you can cross sell a whole number of different both software products, but then also financial services and other types of services. And then you know over time what we're seeing 
with some companies that are really on the frontier is that you get to not only sell to your merchant customers, but your customers' customers and your merchant customers' employees and their suppliers. And so, you know, the world hated small business software probably two years ago, right? Because sorry, 20 years ago, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, customers were too small, they churn a lot and they, they won't pay high prices. Now what we're seeing is actually you can make, you know, quite a bit of money by selling to these small businesses and really making their lives easier, help them do well, then, you know, benefit monetarily from that. So I think Zero is one of the pioneers and um, I, I'm excited about where this can go because I think we're still kind of in the middle of it. And a Box and Dropbox are, are probably the other two, you know, most well-known in that space. In terms of accounting technology in general, you know, there was probably a a time, say, 10 years ago where, you know, there was a fair bit of, I guess, talk or noise around, you know, AI and ML taking the job of the bookkeeper and and really, you know, taking a lot of that lower value, and, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, I mean that in the, you know, how much you can charge for it since work out of, you know, away from the person, from the bookkeeper and from the people that typically do the books. That certainly hasn't happened. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, the, the transition or, or like the, the big movements in accounting was really taking the last one, I reckon, was the transition from desktop to, to online GL and therefore the integrations and the ecosystems that could grow around that. I don't reckon there's been a massive amount of innovation since then. Where do you agree and, and where do you think perhaps the biggest areas for innovation in say small business you know let's keep it keep it broader accounting might come from in the next five to ten years i think back to this notion that technology is aspirational right you, you always leap to the, the five-year outcome and i think most people don't realize it's pretty rocky from <laughs> here to that the five years and so i think it's the same here, thing here right bookkeeping if you think about what the core of bookkeeping is there's a lot of documents many of which aren't digital it's a matching problem right and so inherently, I think, is a very challenging problem. I've looked at matching problems across a number of different industries, enterprise, mid-market, SMB, and the technology is advancing very fast, but it's not there, right? You can't have 100%. Stakes are high enough in, in bookkeeping, right? If, you, if the inputs are wrong, the outputs are wrong. Stakes are high enough where you can't have 100% quality assurance. And so I do think it's technology augmentation rather than replacement. The thing where, where I, I see sort of the, the matching technology where it's AI or ML or various different things, um, I think where it goes in small business at least, and we can talk about enterprise somewhat differently, but in, in small business, I think it does get vertical. There's a real benefit when you're building for one end consumer, one industry, right? The use cases dramatically decrease, the language increases, right? The taxonomy is a lot easier to build. And so I think you're going to see verticalization of these solutions. You're also going to see them with integration to upstream data sources. So, for example, a lot of this data that you need is actually in your point of sale. Yep. Even before it hits the GL. And so why take it from the point of sale, futz around it, shove it into horizontal GL, and then get it to somewhere else, right? The bookkeeper or whoever. That doesn't make sense. And so I think there's going to be a lot more connections between the doing of the product, the taxes or whatever the output is with the input data. It'll be most likely be verticalized. There's obviously always going to be a, a horizontal GL, but there might be thin, you know, verticalized layers on top of the GL where 
Geo is like kind of a, a system of record in the closet, right? Like yep. that thing will spit out your taxes, but you do all this massaging into the thing to do your taxes, but you really run your business in a different system of engagement. So I think that's what that's going to happen. At the enterprise level, um, for more standardized processes, there's some really cool process mining technologies that are coming out that look at a wide range of processes, not just like booking in a data collection. And I think you might see some of those types of technologies applied to these types of problems over time. But um, but I, I think that'll take a while um, and it'll be mainly focused around um, treasury and payment flows rather than reporting like like uh, taxes. But um but uh, but yeah, I, I, it's it's pretty exciting. Like on the one hand, I, I do think it's not a replacement; it's an augmentation. But on the other hand, there there's some pretty interesting step forwards uh, in the core technology right now. Yeah, and I think COVID has only brought more investment into these vertical SaaS companies and highlighted the importance of the small business economy. And particularly, you know, like the small businesses had a rough time of it uh, through COVID, particularly in, in hospitality and, and retail and and food and, and the likes. So there is investment coming in. I think there's smart people that, that are building technologies for these types of businesses. And and governments on the whole has kind of been pretty supportive of these industries. I mean, accountants became the distributor of funds during COVID and, and then they became therapists and, and had to do a whole lot of other stuff during their normal day job, right? But yeah, I, I think you're right. The commoditization of the general ledger is, has been happening for a while. And this is something that I worry about or think about occasionally as a vertical SaaS builder is like, you know, you, you can only sort of chop up, you know, your end user so much <laughs> before you reduce your TAM down to virtually nothing, right? So, so you know, just the amount of software, the amount of vertical SaaS software gets more competitive over time. I mean, I think in accounting we're kind of a bit lucky because it's so unsexy that, you know, not many people go to, go to YC and go, oh, no, I'm going to build sales tax software for accountants in Tennessee, you know, like it just doesn't happen, right? Yeah. But I think globally, you know, small business software is in a pretty good spot. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. There's real power to it. And, you know, I, I totally agree with you. Accounts, the Enverkle is actually reasonably large and they're great buyers because they're rational buyers and they're very ROI based. And I think you can provide a lot of automation so you can actually get pretty deep with these markets as well. I, occasionally I get jealous of these guys that are building for like developer tools or something that there's 10,000 new developers every day. And I reckon we haven't had 10,000 net new accountants in the last 10 years. <laughs> but anyway, that's okay. We'll keep get we'll keep at it. <laughs> Therein is the opportunity for software. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you started Tidemark around a year ago. You were investing with TCV for a long time. What was the, for, branching out on you know dave one 3.0 and what's the thesis behind tidemark and you've got a good little team going to tell tell me about that journey yeah so i was at tcv for about 15 years maybe closer to 16 actually and um maybe for the you know at the high level for the same reasons that you left zero to go start carbon i had a great experience at tcv i'm still very friendly with the team there but i wanted to put my mark on the sort of small kind of growth equity market and you know, I think the hallmarks of Tidemark really are, there's a, there's a couple different lenses to it. There's the organizational model, which is, you know, we're focused on getting better as a firm and serving entrepreneurs better, making better investment decisions. We're not focused on getting bigger. Now, our funds might get bigger over time, but like that's not the emphasis. You can make a lot of money at our scale and 
we're really focused our all of our efforts are about getting better not bigger and that's a little different than a lot of growth equity platforms that have just stacked up AUM over time and where that becomes real is around the the strategy around people we want a small group of very high performing investors and operators and so what we trade for redundancy and internal competition which sometimes leads to performance we get for hopefully commitment and lots of career opportunity and so that's a little bit of a, a different formula there's a whole cultural benefit to that type of approach versus again you know building a, a larger firm that has a lot of redundancy and internal competition which does lead to performance at times and you know, it's a pretty well understood model and, and it's been successful but we've chosen to do something a little differently the second piece is we, we feel very strongly that we want to try and contribute to the community so part of it's our foundation you know, we have this model where you have 10% of our carry to the foundation that gives to causes that align to areas that invest. And part of it's also providing your our thoughts and our perspectives and case studies of success and our network to the community in the form of, you know, this vertical SaaS knowledge project around building vertical SaaS company. We have Avanish Sahai who um, built out Salesforce's ecosystem, ServiceNow, it's on the portal of HubSpot um, to do this as well as Google. He's working at Google most recently before he retired. All these platform ecosystem strategies, right? So there's a bunch of you know series of thought and knowledge that we're trying to give to the tech community that we invest in. The final piece is we believe that we need to bring community of talent to the companies that we invest in. And so we have these 35 fellows, which are C-level executives that are who are, who've run either the entire company or functions of some of the most innovative and scaled organizations out there. I mentioned a few of them already, Dan Workoff, Sankar, um, Chris at Toast, but it's guys like Jonathan Middenhall, who used to be the CMO of Airbnb, Al Schultz, the CMO of Facebook, David McJannon, uh, uh, CEO of Hashi Corp, like pretty long list. Actually, Anton Hanbrick, who runs Corp Dev and Corp Strata and Intuit, he actually led the, the MailChimp deal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the, the idea is that we got to show up with capital. Hopefully we can contribute to ideas and pattern matching, as we described, and then we have, uh, it's not us, it's a community of great operators and executives that can um, serve on boards for us, that can be advisors to uh, our companies, like, you know, the case with some of the folks that are, are starting to work with Carbon and be more than just an investment firm. So that's the general thesis. And, you know, we're, we're one year in, we're getting good product market fit. Like <laughs> companies like Carbon are willing to work with us, which is great. Sign. But, you know, we have a lot to build. And so this is a... Uh, I don't know, 10, 20 year journey. And then the team that um, is here will, will they'll kick me out at a certain point in time, probably, <laughs> I don't know, five, 10 years from now, and they'll take it from here and take it from you know, 10, 20 year journey to you know, 30, 40, 100 year journey, whatever it is. But um, that's what we're trying to do at time. You talk around sort of, you know, I guess quality over quantity in terms of both, you know, size of the business and number of deals and the companies that you work with. What's kind of your ideal model for what Tidemark looks like in, say, five years? I think we're still learning, right? We're still learning about what makes a great firm, but I do think the core components will be the same, right? Which is we got to make great decisions. We have to execute on the core business. We have to have something to offer the world in terms of perspective or patent recognition on these industries that invest in. Otherwise, we're just, you know, we're just capital and probably cheap capital, right? And so I think we'll continue to invest in various different forms of trying to bring that to life, whether it's content ideas people and then i think that as a business can grow we're not here to just like that's not the objective function is to grow as a 
as a fund, but I think that naturally grows. And I think the best people are attracted by growth. And so I think we'll grow as a fund. I, I'm also really excited about what the foundation can be. Mm. You know, the foundation, the mandate is to um, give to or support causes that are aligned to the areas invested. So if we're going to invest in carbon and toast and, you know, legal zoom, CCC that sell software to empower small businesses, well, then we ought to also support Main Street businesses with various different not-for-profit programs. That's an example. There's three general areas that invest in. There's three areas that we'll, we'll try and support. That foundation will uh, use capital to support organizations where the objective function isn't, isn't profit, but it's impact. But they use technology to scale and they use business to, to scale. And specifically with business, I mean earned income model. So it's not 100% philanthropy. Our belief is that these impact organizations can actually have a much higher multiplier effect and really scale and broaden their impact if they leverage business concepts. And so that foundation is supporting these not-for-profit organizations that kind of look a lot like tech companies. And so what the foundation can do, how it can support these organizations might actually look a lot like Tidemark, the, the growth equity firm. And so I'm really excited about what that can be. We got to go kill it on the growth equity side first. Yeah, we're going to make, make some money. <laughs> fun successful because of this. We got to make some money. You know, we did seed the foundation with a reasonably large initial. Yeah, so they're in business already. But in order for that to get big, we've got to go win on the growth equity side. So we got to do that first. But I'm excited to see what the foundation can be 10 years from now. How many people in the foundation? Is it? Is it a, it's just a little sort of, it's like a startup, I guess, at the moment. <laughs> yeah, right now uh, we have one person running it. And look, a foundation doesn't have to be, it should be pretty lean. Yeah, yeah. Can be. It won't, will never be a massive organization, but I hope our capital will have a good impact. I think that, you know, if you're to, if you dream a big dream, like the nice part is hopefully if we're successful as a growth equity firm, then other private equity firms might look at this model as a, as a, path to success and we can have people emulate that model, right? Our, our small low growth equity fund can hopefully make some of the biggest firms in the world donate 10% of their carry. And look, I think at some point in time, given returns to capital, given the outsized rents that private equity firms have garnered, we will be held to account. Yes, there's definitely, perhaps the tide's starting to turn a little bit maybe, but you know, the, the Silicon Valley perception has probably deteriorated over the last couple of years in terms of its, I wouldn't say greed, but the the amount that it gives back is probably not as much as it can be. And, you know, San Francisco during, is, is probably the prime example of that during COVID, right? It's sort of like a, to turned a bit disastrous in, in its homelessness and, and the way that, you know, its restaurants, the vibe of the liveliness of downtown, and you know, it's just dramatically different to pre-COVID. And there's a lot of work to be done in the technology center of the world to make it a vibrant city again. Yeah, look, I mean, the Valley has had this two-decade tailwind and the returns to capital, the returns to intellectual property and the software and internet and tech space have been incredibly high. And it stands to reason that it stands to reason that the Valley should probably give back. Uh, other tech centers should give back. It just, that's how it works. The industry has benefited incredibly greatly. And so what we're doing is not, a massive scale yet, and maybe never will be. But yeah, that was one of the, you know, you asked why, why I decided to, you know, go do something new. I mean, again, we got to go win as a growth equity firm first, but then some of these longer term impacts and not to get too fancy about it, but legacy could, could be really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see what happens. 
Um, this will be fun. Yeah. No, definitely. If carbon can help with some return on equity, then then we're excited about uh, the impact that, that we can have down the track. So let's finish off by talking about our relationship and our burgeoning relationship and, and the thesis that you and the colleagues at Tidemark had, had around carbon. And, and what do you see in the long term for us and, you know, more broadly, the impact on the accounting and accountants that we can influence? Yeah, I would say those two questions are, are intrinsically linked. So our framework for vertical SaaS, not to plug it again, but is you, you need to win the market and occupy what we call the control point. If you do that, you can cross sell a whole bunch of things and then and then you can transform the industry by getting your merchant customers and their customers, their employees, their supplier all on one piece of uh, software workflow and you can do a whole bunch of great things, right? And so when we look at carbon, carbon is a natural comp- control point for a number of reasons. First, you manage the most scarce resources, right? You manage people's time, right? You manage their relationship with clients, right? Pretty soon you'll manage their money yep. in terms of invoicing. And so you're in the best spot. And we've looked at a lot of accounting software and we chose Carbon because of what your products do for your customers. I think the second piece as a reflection of that is your customers spend a lot of time in your product, right? That engagement is incredibly invaluable because the more engagement you have, the more value you can offer your customers, right? Um, you can really help them. You can help with those magical moments to get their job done efficiently, to serve their customers, to really to have their customers thrive because of their input and get through the judgment much faster, right? So the engagement is super um, important. The final piece is more more nuts and bolts and operational, like that's what um, drives winning is on the product side, really strong design, the leading product, the, the MPS from customers was off the charts, some of the highest MPSs that we've done from a service standpoint and customers want more. This isn't like, hey, we're gonna sell a bunch of products and we're gonna merge it. No, customers are demanding for things to make their lives easier, to do their work better, faster, cheaper, more effectively and help their clients. On the sales side, you guys do a great job of really engaging customers in an efficient way and in a way where there's high satisfaction, as I mentioned. And I think there's a lot of room to scale there. And so from a company standpoint, we're really excited to get in this part of the company's inflection point. So that's the here and now. And if we scale, right, if you serve a lot of accountants, then you have a lot of different ways to help your accountants engage with their customers. And by doing that, you can transform the industry, right? If you talk about helping your accounts directly engage with their clients to better understand the financial system without all this manual drudgery that we're talking about <laughs> around bookkeeping and, and the extraction of, of data and information, like that is super interesting, right? You can be an enablement platform for how accounts engage with SMBs and get back to this viewpoint that the best companies work with accountants, the small businesses work with accountants. Um, you can scale it in a, in a meaningful way. So I think that the, the industry impact can be quite broad. I really appreciate the view. And, and I don't know if I shared this with you, but, you know, Jury, I remember when we spoke last August and you, and you asked me, you know, how could you deploy, I don't know, it was a lot of money. It was 20, 30, 40, 50 million or something. And, and I'm like, Dave, I've got no idea, you know, like we're, we're barely spent <laughs> that money over the last seven years, let alone all in one go, right? So, <laughs> you know, you've really expanded my thinking and afforded 
given me the confidence and given us the confidence of, of our capacity and our ability to build software that's meaningful and impactful for the market. And, um, you know, we've got to make money. We've got, we've, we've got to be successful. We get all that. But, you know, the foundation that I think that we built over the last sort of six, seven years has really enabled us to be able to now grow fast. And, you know, it's a little bit scary sometimes, you know, but going through more than a million a month. We were Two years ago, we were lucky to go through 10K a month, you know, so it's it's a big transition for us, but, and there's speed ups along the way, but I think we're moving pretty rapidly to a position where we've got great bench depth in our, in our leadership team, and all we need to do is simple and as complex as it is to build on that foundation that we spent sort of that six, seven years building, but also getting the experience of the 15 years prior in, in all our various journeys, and I want to really thank you for showing faith in us and and giving us the capacity to do this and 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 coming on the journey with us. We really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, look, you guys built an amazing business, and I'm honored to be a small part of the go forward. And the people that you want to give money are to are people like yourselves that really built a business with very little over the first seven years and um, have seen some hard times, right? So you're going to be very careful about how you deploy it. And this next stage, I think, is going to take us all a little bit out of our comfort zone to really push to see what the, the limits of this business can be. But I think the ceiling's really high here. I think you can build some great products that will help your customers thrive. Um, so I'm really excited for it. Dave Wan of Tidemark, thank you for joining me this morning, my time, this afternoon, your time on the Accounting Leaders Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to spend this hour with you. And, you know, again, we really appreciate you and and everybody at the team of Tidemark. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Stuart. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found this discussion interesting, fun, you'll find lots more to help you run a successful accounting firm at Carbon Magazine. There are more than a thousand free resources there, including guides, articles, templates, webinars, and more. Just head to carbonhq.com resources. I'd also love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know you like this session. We'll be able to keep bringing you more guests for you to learn from and get inspired by. Thanks for joining and see you in the next episode of the Accounting Leaders Podcast.